We're going to continue what we started this morning in our theme on, on fear. And we're going to look now in the New Testament to the letter to the Romans, Romans chapter 8. So we're going to open the book of Romans to the chapter 8. We're going to read the first 13 verses as a reading and the next three after that will be, or four will be our text. So Romans chapter 8, beginning at verse 1, there we find these words there, is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, On account of sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. That the righteous requirement of the law might be fully fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is in enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can it be, so then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his and if Christ is not it, sorry, if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And here follows our text for this afternoon. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. May God add his blessing to his word this afternoon. Loved ones in our Lord Jesus Christ, we're going to continue, as I shared earlier, our theme which is on fear, no longer actually slaves to fear. And this afternoon, I addressed it somewhat this morning, but I want to kind of head, head it on straight on this afternoon. I want to address the fear that has gripped the souls of men and women ever since the Garden of Eden, and that's the fear of death. It is a fear that we will all have to face unless Christ comes back on this side of eternity we have to face the grave. 
And I wonder if the author Henry Nouwen, who's a Catholic author, is right when he asks, I wonder if our eagerness to hold on to this life does not suggest that we have lost contact with one of the most essential aspects of the creed, which is the faith in eternal life. Is our tenacity to hold on to the things of this world suggesting something about our spiritual walk that we've lost something of, of the creed and that creed of this part of the creed which is to trust in Christ that he has given us eternal life. And because we hold on to it, sometimes therefore, because we hold on to the things of this life, sometimes therefore we, we begin to fear if we lose it, not only our material things that we have, but then our, our, our mortality. What will happen if this, if this was taken away from us? What will happen if this is taken away from me, this body that God has given me? Is it possible to say this afternoon, in the face of death, that it is well with your soul? That you are able to say, I fear not tomorrow, even if tomorrow ushers me into eternity, because we know not the day nor the moment that we will be taken from this earth. And the question then, is that possible? Is it possible to have such confidence that you do not have to fear this reality that you will have to face death, that you will have to let go of this, this outer garment which we call mortality, this flesh. And I think scripture reminds us again and again that, that yes, we can have this confidence. And I think our text provides us with this kind of confidence. You can find it throughout the scripture where Paul, where Christ, where the Holy Spirit is addressing this reality, but in our text, of course, we're facing this reality as well, that we can have this confidence. And, and, and where Paul goes with this is here, that we are no longer slaves to bondage or to fear. And the reason for that reality, and this is our theme, is that we need to remember that God is our Father. Again, I addressed this a little bit this morning. I'm just going to just flesh that out this afternoon. That God is our Father, and because He's our Father... We can have this confidence, and there's three things I want to focus on that, that's driven right from the text. And the first is this, that we don't need to be slaves to fear because God is our Father. We can remember these three things, that one, the Holy Spirit leads us to this assurance, the assurance that God is our Father, and all that that means for us as his children. The second thing is, if the first is, leads us to this assurance, the second thing is that the Holy Spirit confirms our adoption. That we're part of the family, the forever family. And thirdly, that this Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God also reveals our inheritance. He's a seal for that, and it will never be taken away from you. So let's begin with the first point. We, can have no, we do not need to be slaves to fear because God is our Father, and the Holy Spirit leads us to this assurance. You see, when we talk about God... And people have been speaking about God for, for millennia now. He's not merely a superpower. Or as Aristotle used to write, a prime mover. He's also not merely an intelligent designer, though he is intelligent and he has created a beautiful design. He's not all, all, only a cosmic king that rules a universe that blows our mind in its expanse. No, he's actually... Our Father. 
In fact, in some ways you can say he is first a father on account of the fact that he has this eternal begotten relationship with his son, Jesus, but he's also through Jesus our father. And I think this may be one of the most profound mysteries then of the Christian faith that that we can share today. I don't know if you know this, and maybe you've studied this, but in the Islamic faith, there are 99 names for Allah. 99. Not one of them includes Father. There's no familial type relationship shared in the Quran between Allah and his followers. It's not a father-son, father-daughter relationship. That's the same for Buddhism. That's the same for Hinduism. Even Judaism, which is a belief in the Old Testament yet, resting in the shadows, they do not have a concept, a true concept of the fatherhood of God. God in the Old Testament is used as a metaphor. Sorry, father in the Old Testament is used as a metaphor. You see, the true relationship between a father and a son, a father and a daughter, that we can cry out to God as our father was realized in Christ, in Christ's coming, so that when, he, when the disciples asked Jesus, teach us how to pray, the very first thing he says, is pray like this, our father who is in heaven. Jesus was able to say that because he was going to secure that relationship, of course. And he has. That's the gospel. But if you want to deal with your fears this afternoon, and we all have fears and we have anxieties about tomorrow, and the fear also of losing our life, you need to let the Holy Spirit guide you into the assurance of God being your Father. That's like ground zero. Well, how does this happen? Well, the Holy Spirit reminds us this afternoon of what Christ had to do then to make us children. Children of God. You see, God is a judge to all mankind. We know that. He is the judge of the world. But he's only a father then to those who have become his children. And to become a child of God, we learn in Scripture, you need to receive Christ as your Savior. Without Jesus in your life, you will still remain an enemy of God. Because that's who you are apart from Christ. Because either Jesus, who is the intermediate, the son who brings us to the Father, either Jesus has taken your judgment or you will have to bear your own judgment. And if you have to bear your own judgment, God is then a judge to you and not a father. And of course, that's going to be born on the, on, on the day of days and for all eternity for those who do not receive Christ as Lord. So that either on the day of days you will meet God as a father or you will meet God as the eternal judge of all mankind. And Paul says through the Holy Spirit in in Romans 8 verse 1, this is a gospel narrative, this is a gospel truth that resounds throughout all of scripture. Therefore there is now no condemnation, no judgment to those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the gospel right there. 
There is now con- no condemnation. And because of that, this is the first time in Romans that he introduced the kind of the father-son relationship. But because of that reality that there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, he can, in verse 14, begin to say, for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons or these are children of God. All of Romans begins with this, all of Romans until this point is sharing this, is building a case for this main point that God can be seen as your father and should be. But this is not just a Romans reality. Romans, uh, Galatians 3 verse 26 says, for you are all children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. John picked this up immediately upon writing his, his story of Jesus' life. In and, and John 1 verse 12, he says, But to all who did receive him, that is Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That's why Christ came. Romans 10 verse 9, we read that. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved and you will become children of God. Most of you know this. I hope all you all, all you know this. Because at the center of your relationship with God has to be the finished work of Christ. That's at the center of your relationship with God Almighty. Without him, we are still agents of darkness, children of the devil, destined for destruction, and bondage, and in bondage to fear. And the Holy Spirit comes to us this afternoon through the words of Scripture. Let me be your guide. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and know that I will continue to work in you to remind you of the beautiful, awesome reality of this gift that you can call the God of this universe your Father. Let me remind you of that. It's an awesome, awesome gift. Charles Spurgeon, the the late... British preacher, he said that even the archangel before the very throne of God is not called God's child. He may be one of the most favored of his servants, but he's not a child of God. That designation belongs to you and me. See, you may be struggling this afternoon with anxiety. You may be struggling with a lot of different issues in your life, with a sense of self-worth, with value. You might feel this afternoon that your life is not worth living, that you may be sick or you may be incapacitated and not able to work and you may have many questions about who you are. Let me tell you this afternoon who you are in case you've forgotten. You are someone with dignity that even the angels in heaven envy. Because of this designation, child of God. That's who you are. You are a child of God. You are a prince or a princess of God's eternal kingdom. Spurgeon also says the blood of heaven runs in your veins because you are of the royal line. He's your king, he's your Lord, and he is your father. That's who God is. But then you ask, well, how do I know? How do I know for sure that I am a child of God? That heaven awaits me with an open door into the very throne room of my Father upon receipt of death. How do I know that for sure? 
Well, the Holy Spirit wants to assure you of that reality again, and we read this now in verse 16. The Holy Spirit teaches us, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. <laughs> How do you know? Let the Holy Spirit tell you so. The Bible says on the ground of two witnesses, a fact, a fact can be established. Here are the two witnesses that you are a child of God. The first witness is the Holy Spirit. He's a witness to this reality that you are a child of God. The Holy Spirit, you see, opens up your eyes. This is a work of grace. He opens up your eyes for your need for Christ. The Holy Spirit convicts you of your sins and your brokenness. The Holy Spirit causes your affections for Christ to grow and your love for Christ to grow. And then you open up Holy Scripture and you find your heart warm by the promises that he says of you because you have believed in the one that the Spirit presents to us who is Christ. And, he's, and you learn in Scripture that if you believe in Christ, you are a child of God. And that's a testimony from the Holy Spirit. He's testifying to your heart. You are truly a child of God as surely as you receive Christ as Lord. The second witness is your own spirit. It says here... That the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit. We're not quite sure how that all together works. It's a mystery. We know that we have a spirit. And we know there's a Holy Spirit. How they're working together to confirm this reality that you're a child of God is a brilliant and beautiful mystery. But maybe we can explain it this way. That if you were not a child of God and came into this reality that you realize that apart from Christ, there is an emptiness in your life, a void that no money could fill, no pleasure could fill, no vacation could fill, no latest Xbox or PS4 could fill, that you couldn't buy the satisfaction that, was trying, that you're trying to fill this empty void in your heart, that your spirit became restless, its longing for purpose and meaning became more real to you, and you became tired of the anxiety and the fears that you live with day to day apart from Christ, and you realized you were desperate for a father, for someone who would love you unconditionally, your spirit begins to prompt this, this need, this desperation, this loneliness, this lostness, testifying for your need for someone who will love you and the Holy Spirit opens your eyes and makes you realize that that's the, that's the sole purpose of the, the gospel story that Christ has come to show that he does love you even though you are wretched and in sin. You see, on the ground of these two testimonies, God the Father becomes real to me. That's what you will say. And I wonder if that's true for you this afternoon, that the Father in heaven has become real to you on the testimony of the fact of what you read in Holy Scripture and your heart's longing for more. Do you feel the longing that only the comfort of being a child of God can fill See, if you've not experienced any of this of what I'm sharing with you this afternoon... I wonder if you've been born again into the family of God. Because if you have, you will desire 
his glory, his truth, his purposes in your heart. You will repent and you will believe and God will say, you are my child. Come in, enter into this family. Is there any more assurance that we can drive from this text? We know that God says to us, you know, the Spirit says to us, you are truly a son of God as, as, you, as you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and, and the Spirit is going to help you. He's going to help you understand what that means and the Spirit's going to testify with your spirit that you're a child of God. But the Holy Spirit wants to confirm not only the fact that there's assurance in this, he also wants to confirm the fact that we are adopted into this family. It's a legal reality. Adoption is a legal reality. Reality, that's the second point. The Holy Spirit confirms our adoption. I think the truth of our adoption, the truth of our adoption into the family of Christ provides a fatal blow to the demonic voice of fear. Paul writes, For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, verse 15, but you receive the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Satan has nothing on that. What's the clue to this understanding of this verse about adoption? What's this clue to understanding this, this reality that you could be in bondage again to fear? I think the clue to understanding this verse is that little word again. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption. I wondered then, as I wrote this sermon, when did the Romans live in fear? When did the Romans live in fear that Paul said, you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear? They were living in fear when they were enslaved. Enslaved to what? Enslaved to sin. When sin was their master, fear became their prison. And you know this to be true. When you're committing secret sins in the chambers of your own room, and you feel that guilt and that shame overwhelm your soul, You've just entered the prison of fear. And it's bondage. When addictions consume you, when fornication has the order of the day, when lust drives you into the darkness of sin, that's chained you in, that's chaining you in, that's bondage. It's holding you in the grip. And what's gripping you is the fear. The fear of what? The fear of judgment. The fear of the consequences of our sins. The fear that we're going to be held accountable to the actions that we just committed. That's fear. It might be less dishonorable than the fear of the sin, that type of sin. It might be enslavement to the law. That's where Paul goes in, in Galatians. Galatians 4 verse 8, formerly when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who were by nature not God, but, but now that you know God, or rather known by God, how is it that you're turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved to them all over again? You observe special days and months and seasons and years. He's saying, basically, when you were not serving God, you were serving other gods, and they put you into this enslavement of, 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 of bondage to a law. 
All of that revolves around sin. Idolatry, fornication, addictions. And the Holy Spirit does not want his children, the children of God, to go there, to live there, to make your home in the darkness of your sin. Now the Holy Spirit of God wants you to live as children of God. And as such we need to realize that we then as children of God have been adopted. There's a legal transaction as I say. This is what Timothy Keller writes about this. He says the image of adoption tells us that our relationship with God is based completely on a legal act of the Father. You don't win a father. You don't negotiate for a parent. Adoption is a legal act on the part of the father. It is very expensive and costly only to him. There is nothing the son or daughter does to win or earn that status. It is simply received. This is so beautiful. You don't win God. You don't negotiate with him on, your, on the status of your relationship with him. No, he does it for you. This is the beautiful thing about the gospel, that not only did Jesus die on the cross to justify you, to make you right before him. The gospel isn't that you're just justified and then Jesus leaves you on the street to fend for yourself as a justified sinner. No, the gospel is this, that he justifies you, God does through Jesus Christ, and then he doesn't leave you on the street, he brings you into his home. and says, now that you're justified, I'm going to adopt you. You will forever be my child. You will forever call me father. Forever. And all the children say, that's a long time. What's beautiful is that the language that he uses for the son, his true son who has been his son for all eternity, not born or created, but begotten, for all eternity, Jesus, his son, he uses that love language towards his son, which becomes ours. And what's also beautiful is this love language back to the Father, Abba Father, which the Son uses, Jesus uses, also becomes ours. So Jesus truly becomes our elder brother in this divine relationship. When Jesus was baptized, you know the story, as an entrance into his ministry, signifying that he was set apart for ministry, he was baptized in the Jordan. The Jordan is there. John the Baptist is baptizing. You see Jesus, and then God sends the Holy Spirit as a dove, sealing that reality of what just happened as he's sealing the reality of what we're learning about this afternoon. The Holy Spirit comes down as a dove, lands on his head, and God opens heaven's door and says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And the story of Jesus is living in that relationship with his father. This is my beloved son. This is my beloved son. This is my beloved son. And then he was put to the test. 
And what's interesting in Mark chapter 14, verse 36, when the test was almost too much for Jesus to bear, as he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he cries out this prayer, Abba, Father, if it's your will, please take this cup from me. I know you love me. Because of this love relationship, he can call upon the Father as his Abba. This is Aramaic for dad or for father. Abba, Father, please do this. He trusted the relationship so much, he knew that God was listening. That he could ask God for anything, his Father for anything, and he wanted this cup to be taken away from him because it was too heavy to bear. But he knew he had to take it. So he took the cup and he drank it to its dregs. In some sense, the only time that God has deserted his child was on the cross. He will never desert you ever again because he's only had to desert his one and only son, his true son, because of our sin. And so when Jesus says, you now, or the Holy Spirit tells us to cry, Abba, Father, we know for a fact that when those words leave our lips, God will hear them. He closed his ears to Jesus' cry so that he would never close his ears again to the cries of his children. The relationship was sealed, confirmed, written in blood, You are now my adopted children through my son. You can call me Abba, Father. What an honor. What a privilege. You know, there are many children that won't go to their earthly father for help. They despise their earthly father because their father has not lived up to the title of fatherhood. It's too much honor, they say, to bestow that on my dad who is not a father to me. I've been hurt so badly by him, they say. And maybe you have struggled in your own life with a father that doesn't deserve the title father. That breaks my heart. And you've learned because of God's grace that you still have to live with a disposition of grace and forgiveness towards him. Because he's still your father. But there's so much pain. But I want to remind you this afternoon that the reason why you can call God Abba Father is because he has earned your trust. He will never leave you. He will never abandon you. His ears are always, always, always open to his children. He's your Abba. It's remarkable that Christians struggled, I read somewhere, to even put the name Abba, Father, on their lips because they thought this is just too familial, too familiar even. This belonged to Christ and and God, not us and God. How do we cry out Abba, Father? When the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, took upon that title. Well, this is the beauty of the relationship. This is the strength of this relationship. You are truly in the family. You are truly adopted, so you truly can call him Abba Father.
He is. He will ever be, forever be. Because of what Christ has done. So that when you face the grave, as you will, when death lurks, when fear strikes, when you think it's the last chapter of your life, you can know for sure, without a shadow of a doubt, that when you cry, Abba, Father, he bends his ear to you. You are his child. He is a father. He will not desert you. I'm just going to draw this to a close in my last point. His Holy Spirit not only assures us of our adoption, but also assures us of our inheritance. He says in verse 17, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, we may also be glorified together. I think Paul's trying to reach back now into the promises of the old dispensation, the Abrahamic promises. Abraham was promised land. He was promised a great inheritance. He was promised a nation. He was promised a good name. He was promised a lot of things. But there was something in the promise that was bigger than the sum total of the land that he would receive or the name or the status that he had received. Something in the inheritance that was far greater than the sum total of all of Canaan or whatever name Abraham would receive among the peoples. And this is the reality that when, I'll just story with you a little bit here. When, when Abraham had his descendants, and his descendants, you know, Isaac, Jacob, and Jacob had his 12 sons, God proved to Abraham through the 12 sons of Jacob that the greater inheritance, that there's an inheritance greater than the sum total of the land of Canaan. How do I know that? Because when he dis- dis- distributed the land, proportioned the land out to all the sons of A- uh, Jacob, one of the sons didn't get an inheritance. Which son? Levi. Who was Levi's inheritance? What was Levi's inheritance? I think the Holy Spirit's trying to tell us this morning or this afternoon that Levi's inheritance, in fact, all of our inheritance, which is far greater than any inheritance that you will receive on planet Earth, is God Himself. Believe that. Who could be a greater inheritance than the very being who has created you, redeemed you, and will sustain you for all eternity in perfect love and harmony than God himself? That's who, you're, that's who that's what we're talking about here. Psalm 73 picks this up very nicely. It says in Psalm 73 verse 25, Whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth there is nothing I desire besides you. The Holy Spirit is trying to confirm, even to the Old Testament believer, that their greatest inheritance is is God himself. The Holy Spirit is confirming to us this afternoon that if you have nothing but but only Christ, listen, you have everything. I'll say that again. If you have absolutely nothing, if you're poverty stricken, and I have seen abject poverty, and I have seen people living in abject poverty with so much joy, put me to shame. 
What was their joy in abject poverty with rats crawling around their heads at night? What was their joy? Their joy was the greatest inheritance that anyone on planet earth could ever have. It's Christ himself. Paul says, for me to live as Christ and to die is gain. Why? Because Christ is my inheritance. All I need is Christ. All I want is Christ. In some sense, all you have then is Christ. This is the Lord's day one. What's your only comfort in life and death? Christ. What does that mean for you today as we close off? What does it mean for you now? Right now, right now. What means this? If indeed we suffer with him, we'll also be glorified together with him. If he's your inheritance, your elder brother, if you're in the same family, Christ wants you to journey with him. His journey was through suffering. For a little while, you will yet suffer on this earth as you follow Christ. But the promise is that just as you follow Christ through suffering, and you will, you'll be glorified with him. I wonder if now one is right that we need to let go of the hold on this life or maybe we've lost contact with, contact with the most essential aspect of our creed, the faith in eternal life. But in order to have that reality that we have an eternity with Christ awaiting us, we may, to, we may have to have a looser hold on the things of this world because they may bind us to fear. And we need to let go of the sin that entangles us because that also binds us to fear. And we need to cry out, Abba, Father, in faith. Because as children of God, we do not need to be slaves of fear, ever. For we are no longer slaves to fear. We are indeed children of God. Amen.